You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Reamer, who is not only an instructor at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business and the advisor to many startups, he has a former career as a VP of marketing at a little old company called Yahoo, also worked in various ad agencies, had taken CMO positions. But David, I think you're best known as the master coach storyteller. You're someone who helps startups to come up with their story, not only to generate funding and recruit people, but also to motivate them and help them figure out what they're really all about. And of course, you're the author of this book right here, Get Your Startup Story Straight. Welcome, David. Great to be here. Thanks, Greg, for having me on your pod. So the book that you've written is really all about storytelling and a lot of what you've been doing, not just recently when you're working with startups, but pretty much your entire career has really been all about storytelling. And I think in the beginning of the book, you go back to your undergraduate commencement when you told a story. And I think that was sort of the germ of everything that you've done kind of more or less since. And I think that a lot of people underestimate the importance of stories. When I teach, I try to bake a lot of stories into what I teach. And when I talk to students who have graduated many years later, it's the stories that they remember much more than sometimes the frameworks, the models, the, certainly the formulas. The formulas are the first to go. And yet, even when people themselves know that they tend to remember stories, they fail to understand how important it is when they are doing the communicating. What is it about stories, first of all, that's so powerful? And then why is it that people seem to underestimate the power of stories? Let's start with the second part of that question. Why do people underestimate them? I think we, we beat it out of people as they, we educate them. We're all about facts and it's all about frameworks and especially people in MBA programs or in some cases, engineers. Logic and data is what we're trained in putting together presentations where we logically walk people through things. So we're literally beating out of them what we've literally evolved to be as human beings, which is we've evolved to respond to story. Our whole species separated itself from other versions of human. The Homo sapiens separated themselves from every other animal by being able to basically tell a story about what could happen in the future. Other species could communicate, but we were the first species that could say, hey, watch out next time you're on the Serengeti, when you get to that rock over there, be careful because the last one of our buddies who went over there that didn't end out end up so well. And then when it came to organizing civilizations and communities, and then ultimately businesses and, and, and enterprises, it, stories is what people would gather around. And yet we have this sort of, in, in our education and training, we're, we're training people around some other things. So when I got involved with Berkeley Haas about 15 years ago, I realized I saw this gap and that's what I started to teach. I, I entered a number of innovation programs and started to teach storytelling to people in the context of innovation. And then that led to all the other work I've been doing uh, with startups and, and uh, product folks around innovation storytelling. In the world of startups, you talk about the importance of storytelling, but part of that is about getting other people inspired and part of it's about getting funding, presumably for your startup. But I think you also talk about how the storytelling itself forces the teller of the story to think seriously about what it is that they're doing, right? Like if they can't tell a good story, maybe it's because they don't really know what it is that they're doing. So is, is storytelling a form of, of sense-making? Is that another way to think about it? Yeah, I, absolutely. In fact, sense-making is a really nice bit of language around it. The simpler way of saying it is story is strategy. 
I like alliteration, if you haven't figured that out from the title of the book. But story is strategy. It's always funny when I start working with startups, and you might, we talked a little bit about Databricks, which we'll probably talk about on this pod a little bit. But I, when I started working with them, like most companies, it's all about how can you help me as a company tell the story? But as we get into it together and we lay out a narrative for the company and we get all the narrative elements in place that I teach with my framework about building a story, you end up getting in strategic conversations. Is this the best first target customer? And not like all businesses, but if this was a SaaS business, but specifically what kinds of businesses and who in the business? Because businesses don't buy products, people buy products. So who's the buyer? Who's the user? What type of company is going to be the best place to start? And then once you figure that out, that might actually help inform the mm -hmm. problem that you're solving. And then that's going to inform the thing you actually build. So the point is that if we really use a discipline story framework at the beginning of this process, it's going to get you to rethink a little bit the thing you're actually creating and who you're creating it for. And that's all about mm -hmm. product strategy. Well, I think the main thrust of your book is really about how startups can tell this story to those folks that they're trying to attract resources from. And when I think about venture capitalists, at least when you teach a course on venture capital, as I do, you're teaching people how to evaluate the business model. You're teaching them how to evaluate the capacity to sell product, the capacity to generate market share, the capacity to create recurring revenue, the capacity to build a moat and prevent others from taking away your rents, the ones you generate. And when I think we teach that course, we're teaching people to be very analytical. We're teaching people to be very uh, rigorous. We're teaching them to bring, I guess, what you might think of as their system two to the table, right? The part that requires a lot of education. And I think what you're saying is not only do people bring their system one, or at least their the part that is more easily influenced by this less analytical part of the brain, but also that not only do they, but they should to, to some degree. And so should we be teaching venture capitalists to be more like literary critics to some degree and a little bit less like uh, data analysts? Hell yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because they're going to learn all those other things and they're going to come to it with that as a focus because that's the way the people who enter that field typically think. And yet this other part of it is so important because frankly, if you, and if you talk to venture people, they'll tell you one of the two or three most critical aspects of a strong leader of a startup that they look for is the ability to tell a story. And the reason that's so important is that, first of all, they have to have the story to tell. And you, I don't, as a listener to the story, I don't care about business model. I don't care about their go-to-market strategy. I don't care how great their team is. All of that until, I want to know all about that at some point, but I don't care about any of that until I know there's a real customer out there that has some issue that this person or this venture feels they can solve better than the other things that are out there. And that's the core product story. And if you can tell it in a way so that I really empathize with the customer, and you have to know who your customer is, you have to have that specific customer mind. If you can make it so that as a listener, I'm empathizing with a customer and I believe there's a problem to solve, and then you can convince me that you've solved the problem with the solution you've built, then I'm like, okay, there's a great foundation there. Now tell me what's the business model and how are you going to go to market? And do you, have you protected your IP? And how are you going to grow the business over time? And what's the market opportunity, et cetera? But at first, I've got to viscerally feel there's someone who's hurting and you're going to help them hurt less. 
Matt, that does rely on storytelling skills, the ability to evaluate a story. So yeah, I think we should teach people that. Yeah, the protagonist in most of the stories that you discuss in the book is the customer, right? And it's an ideal customer. In venture, we always talk about the ideal customer profile. So you personify this ideal customer. But in some cases, the protagonist is the founder themselves. And that's usually when the founder identifies with that ideal customer because maybe they are one and the same. They're the person who has firsthand experience with this pain, either by going through the pain themselves or you know, observing someone very close to themselves that's experienced this. And I've, I've seen increasingly startups that begin their pitch with this narrative. It's become much more commonplace. Do you think that they're figuring this out, you know, that they've picked up on it? Have you seen a kind of an increase in the number of startups that have been taking this advice? Certainly the, the folks that I work with, because I mm -hmm. coach them on it, you know, I'm definitely seeing more of it. Certainly in general, I think people in general are realizing they have to connect with their audience. And there's something interesting that happens when we tell a personal story. Our eyes start to spark a little bit more. We get a little bit more animated. Our eyes might open a little bit more. We might smile a little bit more because we're literally, as we're telling the story, we're remembering the experience mm -hmm. that we had. And guess what happens when you do that? Your audience feels the same way because as human beings, unless we're a sociopath, we've evolved to respond to those cues. And so now I'm beginning to feel a little bit more of the what the storyteller is talking about because of how animated they are. And you just can't help it. Now, not everybody has the ability to tell a personal story because they may or may not be the customer. But sometimes there's a way, as you said, to enter through the personal lens and then introduce the customer. I'll give you an example. A founder that you may recall, a Berkeley founder named Thibaut Duchemin, starts his presentation for his company by saying, my parents are deaf, my sister is deaf. And already you're hooked. Like, oh my God, what's that like? He speaks and he, has, he, he can hear, but... His parents couldn't, his sister couldn't. And then he says, I understand how painful it is for someone who's deaf to try and follow a group conversation. He looks over here, he says, you're looking over here and someone says something over there, you miss it. And now you're lost in the conversation. That's how he starts his pitch. So he's in, brought himself into the story because he's witnessed it firsthand, but he's not himself the customer. And in a very economical way, he's found this personal narrative that quickly introduces the customer in the story, explains their problem. And now you're in the edge of your seat wondering, okay, what have you built to make that easier for them? And of course, he's built an app called Ava, which tra transcribes conversations as they're happening and color codes them based on who in the room is saying them. Well, you describe a couple of stories where founders never mentioned their personal story and they left it out of the pitch and the pitches were kind of flat. And then as an aside, it mentioned the personal story and then all of a sudden the listener was hooked. Oh, why do you suppose when, when you have that yeah. kind of ammunition, why is it that so many founders are kind of reluctant to bring it into the mix? Let's use a story to explain why that might happen. Serbi Sarna is one such person, another Berkeley alum, undergrad from Berkeley, who was working on in, in a biotech space and working on a solution to help women with early detection of ovarian cancer. But she had never talked about her own experience with it as a 13-year-old. And it was because she had a terrible experience with it growing up, passed out, was taken to the hospital, was had a terrible time going through tests, many trips to the hospital, never talked about it because she felt it was inappropriate in a business setting to talk about her personal experience. And one day she's meeting with Tim Draper, who's one of the most famous venture capitalists, you know, in Silicon Valley as part of some workshop he was doing or something. And he kept asking her, why are you working on this particular area of science? 
And finally, she told this story. He's like, oh my God, he said, you have to use this story every time you talk about your business because A, I'm now rooting for you to solve it. A, B, I, understand, mm-hmm. I know that you really understand the issue. And C, I know what your commitment is to solving it. You, you have to use the story. She started using the story. He gave her a $4 million investment in her company, the first major investment. And she's ultimately, she sold it to a, a major biotech company for a quarter of a billion dollars uh, several years later. That's the power of telling a personal story. But people sometimes feel uncomfortable. It's not appropriate. We don't do that in my culture. I hear all sorts of reasons. And maybe it's in part because people feel like they have to almost become like method actors to some extent. I have a friend who, when he became CEO, he was very uncomfortable because before he was CEO, he was a doer. And now he felt like he was a performer and he was had to go around and rally the troops and say the same thing over and over again. And it's kind of like when you and I are teaching the same class multiple times, you use the same joke twice and you feel like a fake. You feel like a phony if you have to use the same joke right, twice. Right. That, hey, that's what professional right. comedians do. They use the same joke a hundred times, right? You perform a show, if it's running for four weeks in a regional theater, you're going to perform it eight nights a week for four weeks. If you're on Broadway, you're going to be doing that same joke for a year. And every night you have to give it your all. So uh, there, there are professionals who really understand that. Comedians are, is another example. But the other thing to think about is every time you tell the story, it's going to be a little bit different for the simple reason that there's a different player in the storytelling, and that's your audience. And when the audience is different, you know this as well as anybody as a teacher, that people respond differently to different things and it can lead you to different paths and down different channels. So it's always a bit of a dialogue. And even when your audience isn't speaking or you're not asking them for feedback, they're giving you feedback Mm -hmm. anyway. They're looking interested. They're laughing. They're, they look like they're emotionally impacted or, or maybe they look distracted and they're looking at their phones and you're like, uh-oh, I need to do something to get the story back on track. One of the things I teach with my teams when I'm coaching teams is that, remember, you're having a conversation with the audience even if you're the only one speaking. And uh, one of my favorite illustrations of this, Greg, is from a, a State of the Union address that, that uh, President Obama gave in 2015. And he's telling a story about an American who had... Tr- she and her family had trouble coming through the the financial crisis of the late two, 2008 around there. And he was talking about government programs that could help them. And as he's telling the story, he says, Rebecca and Ben Earler were newlyweds. And as he said that, someone in the audience clapped when he said they were newlyweds, like that's a good thing. And she's literally in, in the Congress while this is happening in the chamber. And after that person clapped, someone laughed, thinking it was funny that someone clapped. And then Another person laughed. And then Obama, who was paying attention to his audience, he just stopped. He smiled. He tilted his head. And then everybody in the chamber laughed, including the John Boehner, the Speaker of the, the House, who like was trying so hard not to laugh because he's on the other side of the aisle. And he didn't want to give Obama the credit, but he couldn't help it. The point being, that happened because Obama was realizing he's mm-hmm. in a conversation. And he let the audience have that moment. And then everyone in that chamber had a moment together. So that's part of the power, even if you're telling the story multiple times, recognize that you're having a conversation with your audience. Do the storytellers have to be authentic in some way? I mean, I've watched some founders, I've seen their stories evolve over time and stories take on more of a compelling kind of narrative, but they start drifting a little bit away from what I know to be the truth. And maybe I'm the only one that knows that there's a little bit of a fudging. They're kind of like when people apply for graduate school and they say, why do you want to do this? And they come up with some narrative like, 
good that goes all the way back to birth, which shows that going to graduate school at this school for this degree is the culmination of 27 years of inevitability, right? And so do you have to teach people to be authentic or just to be good actors? No, definitely authenticity wins the day. There's no question about that. Now, there's also no question that people can become better Mm -hmm. performers. And there's no question there's an element of performance here. You're trying to take an audience, whoever it is. You could be having a one-on-one meeting with someone who you're trying to convince to join the company. And you want to tell them a story that's going to inspire them enough to say, yes, I'm going to join your company and then be able to go home and tell their partner that here's why I Mm -hmm. should join this company. And it's such a good story. They can go home and share it with their partner. You have to, there's a little bit of performative, be honest, tell it, be, be true to yourself, but there is a little bit of performative element. Sometimes people think if someone is showing energy and their voice is showing vocal variety and they're using their arms and maybe they're walking around and, and looking and making eye contact that they're not being authentic. They're being human. You can be authentic and be a good performer. One doesn't replace the other. And I always advise people that true stories are better than made up stories. I want to hear about a customer that you actually have met and that you've talked to. Bring them into the room. Tell their story. And the more authentic, the better. Sometimes as founders, there are things we're going to choose Mm -hmm. not to talk about in our pitch because we haven't quite sorted them out yet. But that's a question. That's like any good marketing. You figure out What's, what are the aspects of this story that I can tell that are true that are going to get me to that next conversation? There was an example in the book where a founder had trouble really coming up with the story. And then you realize that this founder had really not gone out into the field and spoken to any real customers. And so it was really no wonder that they didn't have a good story. And once they did go out and talk to the customer, they wound up realizing that their original idea wasn't really that all that great. So, you know, we all know about get out of the building, Steve Blank, pivoting and all that. But you know, you need some kind of mental framework for interpreting that kind of data that rolls in through those encounters with the customer. Yeah. Yeah. To me, the simplest way of thinking about it is a technology does not equal a product and a product does not equal a business. There are things that you have to move from one to the next and one to the next to get ultimately to a business as an entrepreneur. So these guys you're talking about, they, these are guys in the, in, in the autonomous car business who've done a lot of work there. And they were frustrated with the pace of that business. So they thought, let me go and try and see if I can take some of my learning and move into a consumer business. And so they had a, a cool technology, but they didn't have a product. And they thought they could create a subscriber version of Uber right? Where people subscribe and then they get an unlimited number of rides a month. They thought for commuters or two parents working, only one car, this would be a great solution. But they hadn't really talked to anybody about whether that was the right solution. So again, they had some really great technology, but they hadn't yet landed on a product. Finally, they talked to those people. They find out, no, they're not interested in that. They actually pivoted to something completely different, which was more of a delivery service. And then they decided that didn't land. And they ultimately went back to the autonomous space and took their camera technology. And that's what they ended up developing. And then they turned that into a SaaS business. And then, okay, now we're going to turn technology to product. And then here's how we turn it into a business. But the point is that that Steve Blank talks about talking to 100 customers. What you're doing when you're talking to those 100 customers is you're vetting Mm -hmm. your story. You've got a premise. I have this customer. I think this is the set of customers. I'm going to start talking to them and see what they think. And I think these are the issues, the functional needs, the emotional needs. I think this is the problem I'm solving. And they have their effectively a storyboard in their head. And in the book, I give you both format for making it a little easier to put all those pieces together. And then you talk to people and they'll tell you, yeah, that story's right on. Or, you know, that's not really the story. I'm having a different issue. 
or my friends over there are having that problem, but I'm not having that problem. That's a different segment, whatever it is. And then you're constantly evolving the narrative until you've landed on a solution that somebody needs. And now you've got your story. Well, you make reference to other types of storytelling, right? You talk about Pixar and how they go about creating successful movies. Are the same types of stories, do we see the same types of stories in all these different domains? There's a whole bunch of books on how to write screenplays, and there's a whole bunch of books on what makes for a successful story. And allegedly, there's only a certain number of kind of story archetypes. Does all of that kind of map over into the world of corporates and the world of startups? I felt that it does, but I felt that there was nobody who'd mm-hmm. written about it. In other words, there's a lot of books about storytelling for business people, a lot. But what I hadn't seen, because a lot of students asked me and startup founders that said, I want to do more with this. I need more resources. Point me to a book, point me to the podcast, point me to the videos. And I realized that no one was doing exactly what I was doing, uh, which was taking story and saying, okay, how do we use a story for something new, for an innovation? So that's why I, I put the book together. But the basic framework of a story and the way it applies so beautifully is in a classic story, any great story, usually you're introduced to some protagonist. There's something they're trying to accomplish. And as an audience, we know who the protagonist is. We know what they want. And then we see some obstacles thrown in their way that keeps them from getting what they want. And then we watch the movie or we read the book or we watch the play to find out, are they going to end up Mm -hmm. getting what they want? Guess what? That's an innovation story. You meet a customer You realize the customer has some set of issues. There's something that's making it hard for the customer to get what they want. And and then you go through this journey with them and hopefully the solution you've created solves the problem better than the other stuff that's out there. And it's just like the movie. And literally in the book, I give examples of story arcs for a movie and like a Pixar film and then compare it to the story arc for a startup. Startup's no longer a startup and it becomes a more mature company. Do Mature companies also need stories and and narratives to ground them. And we've seen all these companies that come up with defining principles or that come up with Amazon has the 14 leadership principles and there's defining principles. Also kind of companies have slogans or logos, whether it was do no evil or our goal is to provide information to the world or whatever. So we've got slogans, we've got leadership principles. Do companies need to have these stories that bring everybody together? There's a whole world of branding out there. And even though I grew up with it as an advertising person, the book and the stuff that I'm most interested in now are stories about products uh, because brands encapsulate so many other things, brand values and brand history and there's brand architecture and there's just so many other elements But there's no question that over the life of a brand, they constantly need to introduce stories that refresh the brand and bring and have the brand land for people. An example, Google, a brand that is known universally around the world and has a million associations. It's still important for them to prove to the world that they're a useful thing to have and for people to not take them for granted. And one way to do that is to have people feel that Google's useful. So if you might remember back to last year's Academy Awards, and it was also on this year's Final Four and some other very high-profile television events, there was a commercial about a Coda family, which is kind of ironic given that this year's Academy Award went to the film Coda. Coda is the children of deaf adults. And in this wonderful commercial by Google, they show how this person who grew up in, uh, with both parents being deaf, how he learned to sign mm-hmm. and how he helped navigate things for his family. And then fast forward to now he's an adult, he's married, and during COVID, he had a child 
and his parents meet the child over a bunch of Google tools, the way we're talking right now, but through a Google solution, Google Meet, and subcaptions and all these other things they do. The point is that story was very powerful, very memorable. And one of the most memorable things, even from the whole Academy Awards show the first time around, was that commercial. And that makes you feel like you have a stronger connection to the Google brand and some of those Google products. So yes, absolutely, it's important to do it. And it's important to find ways to do it. Uh, but with the brand thing is a much bigger, and there's a lot of thought pieces on how to do branding as well. But uh, again, for the book, I wanted to focus on people who were, sort of had a specific product. But even big companies like Apple are launching new products. And just as one more example of a big company with a powerful ad, I own a, mm-hmm. an Apple Watch now, and I never did until very recently. My, my wife bought me one for my birthday three weeks ago. And it's only because I started talking about, oh, maybe I should get an Apple Watch. And they've been around for a long time. But there was a commercial where they did such a great job of demonstrating the problem that the Apple Watch can solve. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a commercial where they show you just all you hear are voiceovers of people talking about some yeah. terrible circumstance they found themselves in. And they're literally calling 911 on their watch because they can't get to their phone. And it literally saved their lives. And it was such a great, there were all narratives, like four different narratives in this commercial of people literally having their lives saved. There were these beautiful little story arcs in the 60 seconds that it convinced me that I needed this product. And that's a brand, obviously, it's been around a long time, but it's coming up with a new way of telling a story about a new product that is going to convince me now. I finally, this needs to be a part of your life. Since you were somebody who was an executive in an ad agency a while back, let's say, have you noticed there's a change in the world of marketing? A lot of these ad agencies have had to kind of reposition themselves. When we think of marketing, we don't think of Don Draper anymore. And you reference the Don Draper carousel story in the book, right? Marketing nowadays is really much more about data and about kind of market segmentation and about recommendation engines and so forth. And a lot of these agencies, traditional agencies, have struggled a bit. Is it that they are failing to convince companies of the relevance of storytelling? Or is it that they've lost the capacity to tell the stories and the companies themselves have taken over that role? What's going on in that world of kind of traditional agency marketing? I don't follow it nearly as closely as I might have. It's literally been 24 years since I worked in an advertising agency. That's like a lifetime for most professionals. But what I've obviously observed is that you have to be able to compete as someone who can understand the data side of marketing is all about data now, but it's not exclusively about data. So you have to have a foot in both camps and good marketers have to have a foot in both camps. It's not enough as a marketer to be a really talented growth marketer who can constantly do A-B testing and and constantly refine the marketing funnel and all that sort of stuff and the marketing stack because there's so many technologies in there. All of that stuff is, there's no question it's essential nowadays. If you're not using those tools, it's like a baseball team that doesn't believe in data analytics. They're going to be terrible. But at the same time, there's still an art to the world of marketing. It is some art and science, and you still have to be able to tell stories. And the most successful agencies have to be able Mm -hmm. to do both, or at least be able to identify what part of that world they're playing in and be super well positioned so people know exactly why you're going to the agency. But the fact is, this is to me is a more interesting conversation about marketing leaders. Marketing leaders need to not just be all about one or the other. They're leaving a lot on the table. Uh, either way, depending on what they're, what you really do need to be able to do both things. But storytelling mm-hmm. still matters. There's no question it still matters. It may be even more important because 
it seems like we have much higher rates of attrition of employees and uh, customer loyalty is something that's up for grabs on a more or less continuous basis because of aggressive competition. It's like every single day, your customers and your employees are asking the question, like, why should I continue to do business with this company as opposed to another company? Um, and they need to have some kind yeah. of a story that, that informs that decision. Yeah. And that stands out and is memorable. Compare the, the consumer experience or the business uh, professional's experience who's looking at business products. There's so many different messages they see now during the course of a day. It's not unlike if you're a venture person and you go to a demo day at a, an accelerator and you see 20 companies. Well, which company are you going to remember? It's the ones that told the best story. Right. So when you walk away from those 20 presentations those in, in, in demo day, the best storytellers are going to be the ones who end up being the ones that the people who leave the room are going to want to talk to and talk about. And the same goes through, goes for our lives as consumers and as business people who are trying to make decisions about the products and services we're going to use. So many different messages. I'm referencing two commercials that were just great stories that I used earlier and I'm holding on to them and retaining them because they were just wonderful stories and they've got me to feel better about the brand Google and it got me to convince my wife to get me an Apple Watch. So because of all the zillions of messages that I see, those ones really landed and stayed with me because they were compelling stories. Do you think it's more important that the story resonate with the listener because of some familiarity or that they can identify with the protagonist? Or is it more important when that listener is somewhat remote or distant? I'm thinking oftentimes you have these venture capitalists who are generalists and maybe they don't really understand the domain in which you're creating your startup. They need to be familiarized with kind of the problem of these people that maybe they've never been in those shoes. And so there's a lot of folks who say that literature is a great way to build empathy. And if you're trying to understand what it's like to be someone who is very different from you, literature helps in that regard. So in that sense, it would, it would, that would suggest that it's far more important that when you're communicating, say, a healthcare story to an investor that doesn't really know a lot about healthcare, you better darn well have a good story. But it, the alternative to that would be if the story is a story that the listener can identify with because they themselves have felt that pain, then the story is going to be even more compelling. So is it more important when you're talking to someone that they can viscerally identify with the protagonist or is it more important when you're going across domains? I know you're going to say both. You're going to say both. Well, right? I think you're going to often find yourself, no, no, you're going to find yourself more often than not talking to people who don't have the mm -hmm. deep experience with that customer experience. That's far and away the more common experience. You have to assume that your audience is not an expert in this category, that they don't necessarily know. And, and Demo Day is an interesting example because if you're going to be speaking to a bunch of people in a room, I might be speaking to a venture person in the room who has no experience in this category, but someone in their office does. If they can understand the story you're telling about the customer you're there to help, and that person, even though they don't know nothing about the category, they can go back to their office and say, oh my God, I heard this amazing solution for this type of customer. And I know you're going to find this interesting because this is your thing. You have to get that person to empathize with your customer. And it's more often than not someone who doesn't have the deep experience in the category. And my advice to people is like, how do you do that? Look for the thing that is just human about what you're doing. When I did the work with Databricks, we were talking about the data scientist that's trying to be effectively, they're being asked to be a superhero in their company. This goes back to 2014 when we started. 
uh, companies were spending a gazillion dollars on giant, giant data forms and data lakes to hold on to every single transaction that ever happened, especially with companies that tons of tr- t- transactions, sort of e-tail type companies. And the data scientists were hired. They said, okay, your job is to find the magic in this data that's going to give us this incredible business advantage so we can crush the competition. Go. And they had these massive expectations because of the investments and the whole notion big data is going to save the day. These data scientists would go back to the desks, expect it to be superhero with capes on. And they go back to their desks and their hands are tied behind their back because it's so hard to build and run the programs they need to do to get at the insights. So they're spending all their time building and running programs and zero time looking for insights. And there was this huge gap between what was expected of them and what they were able to do with the tools they had. That expectation gap is a very human thing. Who hasn't at some point in their life had these great expectations on them to do something and then they didn't have what they needed to meet those expectations? So we use that very human thing as a way of understanding a very complex business that was Databricks. And then, of course, we talk about how they solve that problem, make it easier to develop and run the program so that they can spend time in the insights. And anybody can understand that, whether you're an expert in that category or not. So what's the human thing? One more example of a very human thing that really struck me was one of my founders, you may know Steve Derrico, a Skydeck guy, Berkeley Skydeck. He was working on a solution to help people manage their cancer if they had cancer or a caregiver trying to manage someone else's treatments through through going through their, their trying to survive cancer. And while we were chatting about it at one point, he said, you know, having cancer is like a full-time job. And I just stopped him when he said that because it was so powerful Like the idea that if you have a full-time job and now you have another full-time job, or God forbid, you can't have a full-time job because this is your full-time job. Oh my God, that's horrible. So if you can have a a solution that will help make it less of a full-time job, then boy, I'm rooting for you to do that because that's a terrible thing. Anybody can understand that whether you've ever had cancer or know someone personally who's had cancer or not, you can understand that. And that's a very human thing. So if we're looking for ways to people for people to empathize and have something resonate with someone who may not understand the experience or the category, I always encourage people to look for that human experience that uh, that helps explain the struggle of the customer uh, so that you can then, when you describe the solution, anybody can relate to what you're talking about. Can these same stories be redeployed when it comes time to do the customer acquisition? So for instance, with Databricks, can they take that same story and bring it to a CIO? Or is the CIO going to be less likely to think of their data scientist as a superhero? <laughs> or how does, do these stories, can you take these stories and start using them in other domains? Oh, absolutely. I would argue that in some cases, the person solving the problem for the person in the example of the SaaS solution of Databricks, the person working on solving the problem may actually understand better what that mm-hmm. customer, the data scientist is going through than even the CIO. And your job is to tell the CAO, there's someone who works for you who's miserable. And let me tell you why she's miserable. She's miserable because you're expecting her to do this. You're telling her, save the company. And here's what she has to do. And let me describe all the things she has to do to develop and run a program that will enable her to get one insight out of that massive data lake. And now the CIO is like, I'm paying these people a lot of money. It's hard to hire data scientists to begin with. And I'm hamstringing them because of what I'm using. And you're telling me you can give me something that's going to make them much more productive and able to achieve some of those expectations. I'm all in. So absolutely, I encourage people, and especially in a situation where the customer who's buying the solution 
isn't the same person as the one who's using the solution, which is the case with a CIO in a big giant company that's buying these data solutions. Yeah, it's it, it, in some cases even more important because you're, you're trying to help them empathize with their own employees that they may not even understand the degree to which they're struggling. Now, I have a friend who's a partner at a large venture firm in the Valley, and he says that he spends a big part of his job teaching founders how to tell stories because they really don't know how to sell necessarily. That was never part of their training. Now, presumably they must have been decent enough to get the funding already from this fairly successful venture capitalist. But I think they're in the business of finding more potential. So is has this idea of storytelling been institutionalized at different levels and different places? Have accelerators all more or less adopted storytelling as part of their curriculum? Have, have venture capitalists embraced storytelling as something that they can provide to their portfolio companies and their founders as a skill? To what extent has this movement become pervasive? It's definitely growing in significant leaps and bounds, certainly since I've started working on this particular area about 12 to 15 years ago. Many more VCs are talking to me about what they're doing in their organization and how much time they're investing in Demo Day, and they're reading my book, and they're coaching their teams on it. But all that being said, uh, it, it's still hard. It's hard. Storytelling is hard for the people who make stories for a living. I'm working on an original musical I've been working on for 10 years, and uh, we're still working on the story. It takes five years to make a film at Pixar, and there's some great stories about things where they've really struggled telling a story. So when you're dealing with people who aren't professional storytellers who are trying to work on their stories, um, we need to give them as many tools as possible. It's the reason I wrote the book, because I wanted to scale what I do. I can't meet with every startup that's going. I can't spend time with every team, but at least there's a method in the book that they can learn. And there's a number of storytelling techniques they can use to try and tell an emotional and a compelling and a logical story. There's story archetypes in the book. The purpose of the book was to just give people another tool and venture folks and anybody who's in, in this innovation ecosystem to keep mm -hmm. working on it because it's hard. And as you said, it's not something that people innately come by, especially a lot of folks who are you know, engineers and product people who are creating a lot of these uh, products and companies. Well, if you wanted to find folks to coach people on storytelling skills the way you do, could you rely on people without domain knowledge in the world of business? Could you rely on the folks who are professional storytellers? We at Berkeley have hired people who are in the movie industry, people who are improv actors and so forth. Do you need to have kind of a business background or knowledge to provide the kind of coaching that these startup founders need? In a perfect world, you'd find someone who has a foot in both camps. I'm so lucky that I grew up writing shows and being involved in advertising, which is a storytelling business, and working in the tech space as long as I have for startups and companies like Yahoo, and et cetera. If you bring someone in who's just a storyteller, they may be able to help you. And I love the idea of bringing that resource in because what they may be able to do is help find the thing and what people are talking about that's the human thing. That's the thing that they just relate to as a storyteller, because I find that's usually the most difficult thing when people are trying to develop their stories and doing demo day. There's a lot of people who can help make slides clearer and try and make sure that there's a logic to the presentation. But it seems like actual storytellers are best at saying, wait a minute, the real human thing in this story is this thing over here. 
my example of it's like a full-time job. What is that like? Now, let's really empathize with someone who has a zillion things to worry about, like a full-time job to manage their cancer is something that like, who's going to land, identify that. So I think it could be a really compelling idea for people to bring into demo prep someone who who has just is going to be looking for where's the emotional story in this. Obviously, if someone has both sets of experiences, they can then try and connect Mm -hmm. the dots a little bit better to the business story because you still still have to watch the story and go, wait a minute, the Achilles heel, every presentation has an Achilles heel, as you know, the business model isn't making sense. Or this sounds great, but it sounds a lot like this other solution that's already out there. How is this really different from the other solution that's out there or or whatever the, the business piece is? But yeah, if you don't have the person who could do both, it would be really interesting to bring someone in who could help you find there's the hook in the story. Build something around that emotional thing. Now you teach at a business school to MBA students. And Is this something that you think ought to be more integral in the curriculum? Do you think that business students should have storytelling as one of their fundamental skills? If you look at the core curriculum, for instance, we'll have data analytics and we have all this other stuff, management and so forth. We don't have any specific courses on storytelling, although you'd find it in all of them. For instance, in data science, if you can't do visualization and you can't communicate it, it's going to be difficult to move the needle. But is it something we should incorporate into general business education? Yeah, I believe so. Obviously, it's that's what I'm most passionate about. But it's also because we're, we beat it out of people so much, we got to put a little bit of back in there with MBA students. It's one of the things that separates a leader in their career. The best leaders are good storytellers. Mm-hmm. And these are all folks who want to grow in organizations and continue to move up the ladder and have bigger jobs. And storytelling can be a great differentiator for them in their careers. We're doing more in business school with teaching people how to present themselves and how to communicate. We have more communications classes. We hire people at Berkeley. We have improv people teaching communication skills. And I think all of that stuff is tremendous. And yet, it's a different skill to know how to build a story, how to structure a story, what are the elements of a story, and how do I piece those together? So I I need that great story in the first place before I can exercise those great communication skills to tell the story. I got to know how to build the story. And that is something I think we should be teaching. And in fact, I've been teaching it on and off in various programs at Berkeley Haas for the last 12 to 15 years, but I'm I'm meeting with Dean Harrison soon uh, to have another conversation about how we can make it a little more central to the learning. I think it's a great differentiator for, uh, for leaders. Universities and business schools do have stories of their own. I think that we are always telling stories about students that have overcome challenges, come through our degree programs, and then gone on to do successful things. And that's sort of what we tell people in order to attract them to come to our schools in the first place. We don't usually talk about, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. We usually point to these kind of success stories and these transformations that we enable, right? Right. And yet there's also a foundation to that story. I'll never forget when I first started, I just left Yahoo's VP of marketing in 2008 and I had lunch with Rich Lyons, the then, or he was about to be Dean. He hadn't become Dean yet, but he was about to become Dean. And he talked about his ambitions, about wanting Berkeley to be a top 10 business school and everybody to know what it stood for. I said, we have to There has to be some clear point of differentiation. And Rich was starting to lean into this culture thing. And he ended up really leaning into it. And the defining principles of Berkeley, the culture of the school and how that forms, both how it informs who we accept to the program and how we continue to build this culture while they're in the program and encourage them to maintain it when they're out of the program. That's 
the, one of the major underpinning elements of the story. Yeah. So when we choose to tell stories by sharing individual success stories, we want to pick stories where that is the central theme in the story. Look what, look how they're making this contribution by behaving in a certain way or committing to the, be involved in this purpose-driven business or whatever it is that's all rooted in those four principles that, that Rich really leaned into to try and differentiate Berkeley. So I think that if you have defining principles, if you have leadership principles, you need to have kind of illustrative stories, right? For each and every one of them. Otherwise, they're just simply too abstract. If you're a lawyer and you're right. reading through law code, you always want to see the examples. <laughs> Without the examples, it's pretty hard to make sense of you know, what they actually mean in practice. And so do you think teachers need yeah. to be coached up on storytelling skills? Because I find a lot of students complain that the teaching is too abstract and that it's very difficult to remember because it's too abstract. Do you think teachers realize the extent to which storytelling is necessary in order to implant the ideas into the students' heads? Yes. And I would argue that most people don't appreciate how important storytelling is, whatever they do. I was a storyteller professionally as a business person, and I didn't really fully grasp the power of what I was doing or even understood fully all the methods to like how to do it really well until I started to mm -hmm. think about it uh, in this last 10, 15 years of my career where it's like, okay, I'm going to double down in the storytelling thing and try and figure it out. But even marketers mm -hmm. could be better storytellers. Back to our conversation about shifting more towards a data approach and their job, they are the business storyteller. A marketer is a business storyteller. And absolutely, people respond to things that where they can connect and engage. And part of the way that we learn is by having emotional experiences and connecting to things. And certainly we have to be able to hold on to things so we can apply them later. And one of the things we haven't yet talked about, I don't think on this podcast, is that the part of the brain that processes emotion, the insula, is the same part of the brain that that has mm -hmm. the memory center. So we're up to 22 times more likely to remember something if we learned about it in the context of a narrative. So why wouldn't we as a teacher, if we want someone to hold on to something, tell a story about something so that by remembering the story, you can remember the point. I've been, in this talk, I've used a number of Serbi Sarna, right? The, why is it important for someone to tell a story when they didn't tell a story? I didn't just explain the science of it. I told you about Serbi Sarna. And now that story about that person who had that terrible experience with of an ovarian cancer scare, how that transformed into a quarter billion dollar company. You're going to remember that because I told you about it in the context of a story. So yes, absolutely. We could all get better and the teachers especially. I remember I was teaching data and decisions a couple of years back and I was talking about how important it is that you base your decisions on data and not on anecdote. And in order to cement the point, I told a couple stories of people that had made really bad decisions based on anecdote. And so one of the students, one of the first year students said, you just used an anecdote to explain why we shouldn't use anecdotes. And I said, you're absolutely right. I sure did. And I did that on purpose. But what's the distinction there, right? You used an anecdote to make a point about data, mm -hmm. right? You didn't, they're not independent. One of my favorite examples of this is a student walked into my office one day, 10, 12 years ago, Komal Ahmad, a Pakistan, first generation Pakistani American immigrant. And uh, she said, I want to solve the world's dumbest problem. So oh, what's that? She said, it's hunger. So can you tell me more? Fast forward three or four years later, she's on the floor of the UN giving a speech at the UN about this company she's built to solve the world's dumbest problem. And what she did in my office and what she did on the floor of the UN is she told the story about finding a, meeting a homeless person a block away on Telegraph Avenue from the campus dining hall where there was all this leftover food after a big giant event or something. 
And she meets this homeless vet who hadn't eaten in three days. His name was John. And she had lunch with him and he told him her story, told her his story. And it was through that she discovered and then did the research that there's 50 million people, five zero, who, who go to bed hungry every night in this country, in the United States. And there's 365 million pounds of perfectly edible food that's wasted every single day in the United States. And her business was created to connect those 365 million pounds of perfectly good food that's wasted with those 50 million mm -hmm. Americans who are going to bed hungry. That's her business. It's a two-sided market. And her job is to build a, a technology solution that can connect those two numbers, two data points. And you will remember those data mm -hmm. points, not because they're good data points, but because I told you about them in the context of the anecdote of Comal walking down the street a block away and connecting John to that dining hall. So yes to both. Mm -hmm. Give me data, but give it to me in the context of a narrative of an anecdote, and I'm dramatically more likely to remember it and have it move mm -hmm. me so that I want to do something about it. Well, David, this book, Get Your Startup Story Straight, is full of great stories. And of course, the stories that you tell about how you learned about these stories are stories in and of themselves. But in addition to kind of recounting those stories, you also provide future storytellers with a playbook to help them get started and to craft better stories, particularly as startups, to help raise funds. So I really appreciate you joining me. Great to see you. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. And I hope some folks have learned more about this discipline and put some time into it because it'll really help them make whatever they want to have happen, happen. Check out the book. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast dot com. <laughs>